Find your Bible, open it to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. We begin a new series today on the church. So over the next couple of months, I'm going to be searching the scriptures to certainly see what we can learn about this God-bought, God-wrought institution that you and I know as the church. So I've chosen this passage out of Matthew 16 because it's the first mention that Jesus mentions of the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones of God. So we see from the lips of Jesus this first foundational promise concerning his church. And he calls it his church. Can we agree this morning that this is his church? That the church belongs to Jesus? What Jesus once was, the church has become. You know, I often say this, while Jesus and the church are not identical, Jesus and the church are inseparable. You find three metaphors uh, used for the New Testament church. We read that the church is the body and what? Jesus is the head of the body. That the church is a building and Jesus is the foundation of the building. We see that the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom. Do you see those vital connections? You see, you can't have a body without a head. That's, that's dead. That's gross. You can't have a building that will stand without a proper foundation. You can't have a bride unless you have a bridegroom. And so while Jesus and the church are not identical, Jesus and the church are inseparable. So while the state of New Mexico may believe this property belongs to Hoffmantown Incorporated, we can tell you this, it really does, and it belongs to Jesus. So in essence, since you and I make up the body of Christ, we all should have a serious concern about the church. In Ephesians 5, it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church, that he's the head of the church, he's the savior of the church. And those who claim the church isn't important or optional, I will tell you, haven't considered what the New Testament has to say about the church. As I have told you already countless times, the calling of my life has been this, simply and straightforwardly to serve the church. What a high and holy calling it is. And in this season of my life, God has a calling on my life, and it's to serve this church. And he's called you, if you're a member of this church, a member of this body, to as well serve and give and pray and witness for the church. Because you see, we're a family, aren't we? And you know when our family, in our family, when someone disappoints us, or there's a challenge with one of our family members, do we quit loving them? Do we abandon them? Of course not. We're quick to come alongside them and let it be so in the church. So over these next weeks, we're going to be looking at the history of the church, the mission of the church, the future of the church. And to be reminded, this gathering today is a God-ordained deal. This gathering is His church. So please stand on reading God's Word. I'm going to read from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. I think we'll have it up on the screen. And uh, you follow along as I read. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, 
Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound, and whatever you bound in heaven will be bound. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven as well. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Father, we pray today for a filling of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving this church, redeeming these people. Send the Holy Spirit today, not only to abide in our hearts through faith and faith and be our comforter, but as well that we might be one, even as Jesus prayed that the church would be one, that people might know that you are the Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Seems to me that we live in a day when the church is in constant white water. They are, these are critical and certain, uh, certainly uncertain times for the church itself. The very question of the church is being somewhat questioned. The validity is being debated. Its effectiveness seems to be failing. And all too often, people simply marginalize the church, even by its most ardent supporters. George Barna, in his book, Religion in America, said 81% now arrive at their own religious views, oftentimes without any regard for the scriptures or the teachings of the church. Three things we're going to look at today. We may even look at four. Matter of fact, we are going to look at four. Three works, but four's better. Amen. Number one, let's look at the, first the context. In verse 13, Matthew gives us the location of where Jesus, his disciples, are arriving there at Caesarea Philippi. I know uh, if you've been to Israel, uh, been to the northern part, hopefully you got to see Caesarea Philippi. It's close to the border of Syria, not too far from Lebanon as well. It was a city built in honor of uh, Caesar by Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And today, if you travel there, there's still a few archaeological remains that are interesting uh, to see. Mary and I have been there many times. It's near the headwaters of the Jordan River and uh, close to these massive limestone bluffs. Indeed, it was a pagan city where great shrines to the god Pan were built. And according to mythology and this, their object of worship, he was half deity, half animal. He was born in a cave nearby. Some of the remnants of those, uh, those old pagan worship sites are still standing today. So it was in that religious and pagan culture context that Jesus begins to question his disciples and, and ask what are people saying about him? I mean, have you wondered why in the world is he inquiring about what people are saying? Certainly wasn't because he's having an identity crisis. All right, it wasn't even that he was, hey, he was curious about what people might be saying. But I'm telling you, it was a backdrop to teach his disciples things about the church. And the second truth I want you to notice with me, not just about the location, but down in verse 21, the notification that Jesus shares about his mission and the new emphasis of his ministry, what lay in store for him uh, in, in the days to come. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised again on the third day. So let me shine a little light as we move past this where Jesus is revealing in this context 
not only regarding his destiny, but the mission that lay before him. First, we see the place it's going to happen. Where? In Jerusalem. This horrific event that we know as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ happened in Jerusalem, the city of David, what the psalmist call the city of God, the spiritual capital of the world, where Herod's magnificent temple stood uh, there on Mount Moriah. We call today today the Temple Mount. It's where they would travel and make their pilgrimages to these Jewish religious feasts that were celebrated where sacrifices were made. And Jerusalem was the appointed place where the Savior of the world would die. But secondly, we're told also not only about the place, but about the punishment that would be his. He said, I've got to suffer many things. And indeed, he would suffer many things. We know about the beatings. We know about the scourgings. We know about the humiliation of that cursed destination that Jesus would be nailed to a Roman cross to be killed. And that cruel and inhumane practice was reserved for the insurrectionists and the hardened criminals, the murderers of Jesus' day. The Romans had learned that tortuous practice from the Phoenicians and the Persians, but that would be the destiny of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The essence of the gospel tells us Jesus died on a cross outside the city walls of the holy city as he hung suspended between heaven and earth on a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus died atoning for sins, reconciling a sinful world to a holy God. For Christ also once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that what he might bring us to God. But with this, he gives this promise. I'm going to be raised the third day. So he pulls back this prophetic curtain. He clearly promised that death couldn't keep him. The grave would not hold him. His mission would culminate in defeating, yes, our last enemy, and that is death itself. Jesus gave this promise in John's Gospel, chapter 11, as he arrived at the house of Lazarus and the sisters Mary and Martha. And he declared there, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And the one who believes in me will never die die. So it's not surprising as soon as Jesus first tells his disciples about the church, he makes a beeline to share with them the essence of the gospel message. He tells about, here's the church and here's its mission. It is the gospel. Euangelizo is the Greek word. It, It means the good news of the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so now Jesus is setting his face like flint to both demonstrate and facilitate this monumental mission that lay ahead. Just as he said to the, the, with simplicity in Jericho to a short little man named Zacchaeus, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. What a perilous and puzzling mission. Jesus Christ, the God-man, dying ignominiously on a cross. And Paul would write for the preaching of the cross to those who perish is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So we see the context. Let's move quickly. Secondly, we see the consensus. Jesus seems to want to hear what the public opinion of him is as he asks the question, who do men say that I am? Isn't that really the question of the ages? What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? Believe me, the response to that one question has eternal significance. You get this one wrong, there's no hope for you. 
upon this question hinges eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. So the teaching ministry of, the Jesus, of Jesus here is coming to a crescendo. And now for two and a half years, he's been moving towards maybe even this one moment of asking this question to his disciples and what they would face and what you and I must face. What do we believe about this man, the God-man, Jesus Christ? So the disciples respond as if they had run some kind of a Gallup poll in Galilee and they repeat back to Jesus what the consensus was in and around Israel. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. We know about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, who is recognized as a prophet throughout Israel. However, we read in Matthew 14 at the request of the daughter of Herodias that uh, Herod had John decapitated. And some were saying that John the Baptist had been reincarnated and that he'd come back to life in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you realize today... Hundreds of thousands believe and propagate the idea of reincarnation. To do good works. And if you do enough good works, you'll be reincarnated, not as an insect, but as a mammal. Well, there's a compelling thing to give your life to, isn't it? <laughs> First, some were saying John the Baptist has come back. Others were saying Elijah. We know who Elijah is, that sixth century prophet recognized as one of the foremost prophets in all of Israel. And to this day, as you well know, when Jews celebrate the Seder meal, there's a vacant chair set at the table left for Elijah, who they believe will precede the coming of the Messiah. And as you know, John would himself declare, I am the Elijah who's come. I am the forerunner. And he would declare in John 3.30, and I've got to decrease because Jesus has come and he must increase. Some are saying that uh, perhaps he was Jeremiah. We know about Jeremiah. He's the weeping prophet of Anatoth, the writer of Lamentations. He was the one who had such a tremendous burden for the people of Israel. And Jesus certainly, too, had a burden as Jeremiah did. And as Jeremiah had wept over the sins of the people, Jesus, too, would on the Mount of Olives look over Jerusalem and declare in Luke 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you as children together like a hen gathers its chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. And then they simply said, you're one of the prophets, inclusive of those perhaps Isaiah, Ezekiel, those like Daniel, Amos, Obadiah, on and on, that Jesus, you're in the league of prophets. They were the mouthpiece when they were here, and now you're the mouthpiece of God. Honestly, isn't this the very essence of many false religions today? Ascribing to Jesus the role of prophet, but not God incarnate. You can ask the millions of Muslims about Jesus. They'll quickly say he was a prophet. Not as great as Muhammad. And they will tell you Jesus didn't die on the cross. That was Simon of Cyrene. Jesus didn't rise from the grave. He was translated up to heaven. He never died on a cross. Ask our Jewish friends. They'll tell you Jesus was a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's a prophet, not their Messiah. They're still waiting for their deliverer. So the apostles gave a response to Jesus' inquiry, and their response really is 
what the public is saying. Not just in their day, but in our day as well. I mean, we live in a day of pluralism, of syncretism, of hedonism. And, 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 and the people have created the God that they want, the God they prefer. They shape him into their liking. And this God that is always shaped by the culture at large is certainly non-judgmental. He's the God who makes no demands. They flip the narrative. And they declare now one God is as good as another. There's no certain God. There's the God that you prefer. But can I tell you and remind you once again, the essence of the Christian faith is about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and he alone being God. He is the pathway to heaven. Just as Peter in the streets of Jerusalem and Acts chapter 4 would say, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none of the name unto heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. Now let's look at this confession. So after asking what others are saying about himself, he turns and asks the apostles, What do you say? Second person, plural, emphatic. He asked the questions to the twelve. However, the alpha male of the group spoke up, the apostle Peter And he knocks it out of the park with his personal declaration. Thou art the Christ, the Christos. You are the Messiah. You are anointed one from God. And while Peter's confession is clear and concise, unmistakably articulating his personal faith, it wasn't the first time that we read in the Gospels that Jesus had been declared as the Messiah all the way back in John chapter 1. Nathaniel had confessed that Jesus is the Christ after Philip had told him about Jesus. In Matthew 14, after Jesus calmed the raging storm in the Sea of Galilee, what did his disciples collectively say? Surely he is the Son of God. You remember in John chapter 6, after Jesus had sent the multitude scattering because he began to talk about these difficult things about eating his body and drinking his blood. And we read in John 6, uh, 60, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And then verse 66 said, and from that time on, many of those who had followed him left him to follow him no more. You remember what happened. Then he turns to the 12 and said, but what about you guys? Will you leave? To which Peter gave this this great confession. Lord, where can we go from here? Only you have the words to eternal life. And we believe that thou art the Christ. Can I tell you today, people are going in every direction, trying to find some peace. They are going every direction, looking for contentment, searching for some purpose or meaning in their life. But they all end up at a dead end, full of broken dreams and heart-wrenching despair. Because it's just like Peter said, Lord, where can we go from here? Only you have the words to eternal life. Jesus is teaching. He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, but He is the rabbi. He's the rabboni. He is a teacher. And He's using a unique method here, and we find Him really throughout the Gospels teaching in unique ways. We find Him first preaching. He would stand in the synagogue there in Nazareth and in Capernaum. He would preach and make proclamation. We know him as the parable teacher. 33 times we read in the New Testament, he's telling an earthly story with a heavenly meaning that's captivating and compelling. 
stories like the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the, the, the Unmerciful Servant, and on and on and on. It was his favorite method. Sometimes he'd use object lessons. Remember, he had sent Peter down to the Sea of Galilee, and he said, there's a fish down there. Bring him here, and there's a coin in his mouth. And he said, look, you've got to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render unto God the things that are God. I, I like the object lesson he used with a little child, and he brings the child, and he said, he said look. As they look at the little child, he said, look, the only way you can get into the kingdom of God is if you have childlike faith. But here he's using a unique method, and that is simply this, questions and answers. He's inquiring of them. They're responding to him. And perhaps he questions you and expects a response from you as he once again asks the question, what do you believe about me? What's ultimately the mission and, and desire of your life? Because truth of the matter is, as the Apostle John would write, it's this simple. He that has the Son has life, and he who has not the Son of God has not life. So we see this is a personal confession, but Peter quickly learns his confession is providential. Verse 17, Jesus said, look, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So it seems now, up until now, Jesus making this messianic claim had been subtle. Maybe he had been affirmed by miracles, of course, but the fullness of his deity is being grasped as Jesus declares this confession, Peter, validates something that the Father in heaven has pulled back the drape and revealed this to you. You didn't deduct this on your own. You didn't come up with this on some kind of impulsive, impulsive or capricious idea of your own. God Opened your eyes to see and believe. As Jesus would say in John chapter 6, no man can come unless it's been granted to him by the Father. What's been granted? Faith to believe. What's it say in Ephesians chapter 2, 4? By grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now we've become his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Who? We as a part of the body of Christ, the church. Which is the fourth point. Not only the context, the consensus, the confession, but let's talk quickly about the church. We must understand that this great confession of Peter here, because as you well know, the Roman Catholic Church has taken it to mean that Jesus is appointing uh, Peter here is the papal leader of the church. However, I would suggest to you careful exegesis of this text comes up with something quite differently. So under A, let's talk about the revelation. Jesus declares, on this rock I'll build my church. Now here's what we do know. Peter's name was Petros. In, in Aramaic it means small stone. And Jesus really is using a word play here with the word Petra which meant a huge boulder or an outcropping of rock, which was visible right there in Caesarea Philippi. As he is simply declaring this, Jesus is both the foundation and the head of the church, and don't think for a minute that he's handing it off to Peter here. So Jesus' words are best interpreted as a simple play on words, as simply declaring this, that boulder of truth, 
that came from a man who was a little rock, Petros, is now making a confession that the Petra, and from everlasting to everlasting, the church must be built on this epic truth. What's the epic truth? That Jesus is the Christ. We build our church, our faith, on that simple and profound truth, that epic truth. So how does one become a part of the church? Well, by confessing that Jesus is the Christ. If thou wilt confess with thy mouth, O Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes into righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Two quick things. Not only the revelation that we talked about. Now, he talks about the resiliency as well. The church will be built on this Petra of truth. It will endure. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, that word Hades is the place of eternal punishment for unbelievers. We, in the Greek New Testament, it's, it, it, it's referred to as Gehenna. The Jews use the term Hades as the place of death. So death, the ultimate weapon of Satan, will not be able to stop the church. How true it is. The blood of martyrs has been nurtured, has nurtured and grown the church throughout the ages. It hasn't silenced the church. All the disciples except John would die a martyr's death. And the church, in spite of antagonism, through both overt and covert attacks, still flourishes. I mean, think with me a minute. Nero did his best to stop the church. Militant Jews were seeking to stop the church. Like Saul of Tarsus, they couldn't stop it. Emperors have tried. Kings have sought to silence and destroy the church. But it cannot be church. Because, listen, church, we are the church triumphant. And in closing, can I say, I'm concerned about the church. I'm concerned about every church. But I'm concerned about this church. Because here's what goes on all too often. There's too much indifference. There's too much apathy. Scores of people who call themselves Christians, but people who could care less about the church. And this problem is no small deal. It's become pandemic. And I'm just asking you today, are you part of the problem? Or are you part of God's solution for the church? People claim to be Christians, but they live like practical atheists oftentimes. You always have to ask yourself this. Am I acting like one who belongs to Jesus? Am I praying? Am I asking God, seeking God about the decisions I make in my life? I'm telling you, if you only show up for church, when you can uh, make it work in your schedule, you come to church if you don't get a better offer, you don't give financially, you don't sing, you don't pray, you don't worship with us. I wonder, have you overstated your commitment to Christ? Can I tell you, the church is going to survive with you or without you. This church is going to survive without me. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the church triumphant. It will persevere. It's resilient. It's built for eternity. But I'm pleading with you today. Give the Lord Jesus in his church your all. What a wonderful way to live your life, serving the God of the ages through the church, his body, his building, and his bride. Would you bow your heads with me today?
Father, help us to love what you love. And you love this church. You've redeemed us, set us apart, sanctified us. You've taken us from the miry clay and set our feet on the rock, a firm foundation to walk in uprightness and truth, to shun what is evil and cling to that which is good. At our conversion, you've given us spiritual gifts so we could fit in the body, your church, to serve you as best we can. Help us not to be disparaging towards the church. Help us to speak kindly and often about the church because you love the church. This is your body. And now as we wind this down and bring it to a close, I, I pray for I pray for Hoffman Town Church. Lord, thank you for giving me a love for this church. Thank you for calling Mary and I here to be a part of this church. And Lord, I pray that I could play some small part in taking us the right direction, a God-honoring place where Christ is preached and people are one to the kingdom and where we love them and we stand by them. Help us, God. And Lord, as we've done over these months, we've given a personal invitation to invite people to make decisions for you. We want to do that today. And Lord, I would pray that you would send the Holy Spirit as only you can to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment for the sake of our Savior. I pray if there's some people with awe against this church that they would get right in their heart today. I pray if I could pray with some of those people that, Lord, you'd bring them our way. I pray that many would respond today being compelled to simply say by coming, I want to love what you love, Jesus. I want to be effective for you. I want to have peace in my heart. I want to have contentment in my life. I want to have direction. I want to have purpose. And I know it's not found in a different job. It's only found in fleshing out of faith in you. So this is your invitation. We lift up Jesus knowing that when we do, you'll draw people to him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together. David's going to lead us in this invitation hymn. Staff will be at the front. I'll be here as well if you'd like to come and pray. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, I'm telling you, Jesus is the hope of the world. Come give your heart to Him. Live forever. Become a part of the church. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. You come right now while we sing God Calls. The church is one foundation. Is Jesus Christ for
God bless you for being here today. We're looking forward to being back over these next couple of weeks and uh, praying that God would honor our time together and be uh, glorified in his church. Thank you for being here. And uh, if you haven't gone to your K group, your Bible study class, uh, we're certainly dismissing you to be involved in one. Mary and I have gone countless times to various uh, K groups, Sunday school classes. They're awesome. You've become a part of one. Become a part of that small group, that family of God meeting together. You'll be blessed for it. Get out of here.